Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I am so excited about Heart and Soil. You guys know this is my company, this is my passion project, bringing you all nose to tail nourishment. This is something that I have been just really working hard on the last few months and I could not be more proud and ecstatic and steak dancing about the way it's going so far. We are already helping thousands of people put Oregon's nose to tail nourishment back into their life and helping them reclaim their ancestral birthright to radical health with this. But here's the deal, I don't want you to take our supplements. Nose to tail nourishment is really the key. However you can get that, do it. Eat organs, eat liver, eat fresh liver, eat fresh spleen, eat fresh kidney if you can get it. Eat bone broth, do this stuff. But the reason I make these supplements, the reason we do this is because we know that a lot of people can't get these in their life. They can't access them, they don't like the taste, they're traveling, it's not convenient. So with that in mind, I wanted to create a company sourcing the best quality organs I could from New Zealand, and now we're developing a US-based supply chain to help those of you who don't wanna taste these things, who can't get it in their life, or wanna give it to your kids or your dog or your grandparents who aren't going to eat raw liver or even cooked liver, and I wanted to get it for you in a pill. We desiccate it, we freeze dry it to preserve the nutrients, and it makes it so convenient because it's in this capsule, a gelatin capsule, mind you, which has even more collagen. So like I said, right now we're sourcing from the best regenerative farms in New Zealand. We've got a U.S.-based supply chain coming, and we are creating unique formulas. At this time, we have bone marrow and liver, the only bone marrow formulation on the market without flow agents like rice flour. Our unique combination with liver allows for synergistic absorption of the fat-soluble nutrients in both of those organs and provides the unique nutrients of bone marrow like LL37, which is an immune peptide found in that organ. You guys know bone marrow and liver. This is gonna make you really, it's like rocket fuel. It is good stuff. The other one we've got right now is beef organs, the classic combination, liver, heart, kidney, spleen, and pancreas. One of the guys in our company, his mom is taking it, and she told him, wow, I feel so much better. What do you think I did? And he said, mom, you know what you did. You got this like deep nutrition in your life that you've been missing. This is why we do what we do at Heart and Soil. I am so passionate imagining that my mom, my sister, my dad, my grandparents, if they were still alive, could access this deep ancestral nutrition in a, such an easy way with our supplements. They should really be called food because that's what they are. But we call them supplements because they're encapsulated. But really, it's just food. So that's what we do at Heart and Soil. We try to get you and your family and your kids and your dog and your grandma and your grandpa the best nutrition they can in the most convenient way possible. If you can eat fresh organs, that's great. Do that. If you can't, I am blessed, gracious, happy, excited, and steak dancing to share with you my passion project at Heart and Soil. And I hope you'll check us out heartandsoil.com. 
supplements.com is the website. You can follow us at Heart and Soil on Instagram, and you can use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first purchase. As a listener of this podcast, I appreciate you very much. I also appreciate my buddy, Michael Ruscio, who I talked to on this podcast about the gut microbiome. Michael is a very well-known gut doc who has been thinking about this for a long time, who wrote a great book called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And we dig into it in this podcast. I ask him straight up, Michael, do you think fiber is necessary for a healthy gut microbiome? The answer may surprise you. As you will also hear, or hear in the next podcast with Lucy Mayling next week as well, the Hadza have a cyclic, a cyclicity, a cyclic nature to their microbiome that happens between the wet and the dry seasons. In the dry season, they eat a lot of animal products and their gut microbiome shifts. In the wet season, they eat more plant products and their gut microbiome shifts. What we know is that the gut microbiome can shift depending on what we eat. And incidentally, the Hadza and many of these other indigenous groups are not developing inflammatory bowel disease every dry season when they're eating mostly animal products, as many researchers would suggest. If you've heard me talk in the past to others on podcasts and or you've read my book, The Carnivore Code, you will know that there is this very fascinating thing that can also happen with humans that we can ferment the collagen of animal foods, this is animal fiber, quote unquote, into many of the short chain fatty acids we need. So these are fascinating discussions. I hope you saw the first one last week with Dr. Vincent Pedre. This will be the part two of a three-part series on the gut and the microbiome. Lucy Mailing is coming next week. Check out drruscio.com for more about Michael and his book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. Enjoy this podcast. This was a super fun one for me. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes, podcasts, wherever you listen to it. It's how we help move the needle forward and reach more of these people. Thank you, my tribe. I also very much appreciate my sponsors, White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. You guys know this farm by now. If you don't, you are in for a treat. This is Jenny and Will Harris. My goodness, these are some of the best humans I have ever met in Bluffton, Georgia. For 20 plus years, Will Harris has been farming at White Oak in a regenerative fashion. The beef, the lamb, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised. When you go to Bluffton or see the pictures, you will see the greenest grass, the happiest cows, the coolest farm I have ever seen making some of the best meat and organs I have ever had on this planet. So you can use the code CARNIVOREMD at White Oak Pastures for 10% off your first order. And I believe this will be where the change happens. Regenerative agriculture is the single greatest factor, I think, that will improve the quality of the soil on this planet and ensure that our children and grandchildren will have a planet on which to play and laugh and jump in lakes and rivers and be healthy, nourished by these types of foods. CarnivoreMD at whiteoakpastures.com for 10% off your first order. Check out their loyalty program. They are establishing a sort of supply chain for those who are worried about the meat supply chain going down, and I think this is a very worthwhile investment as well. I also want to tell you about a new sponsor for this podcast. It's called Let's Get Checked, and I am super about testing, lab testing. You guys will know I have a blood work podcast coming up of my own, and I use some of the Let's Get Checked stuff to test my own stuff. I want to tell you about them. Here is a a statistic for you. Did you know that across the globe, men's healthy sperm counts have dropped 50% in the last 40 years? Hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels are commonplace in modern male health. Did you know that for one in four men over 30 are low in testosterone and have a hormonal imbalance? Symptoms of this, low energy, fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, 
Even a hard time making decisions is scary stuff and misdiagnosed. The solution I am super excited about, let's get checked. Getting your blood work checked is critical. Not having to go to a lab makes it way easier. These are a company with a mission to make professional healthcare testing services easily accessible. They're fast, affordable, always confidential at-home male hormone test kits help our listeners, my listeners, take a measured approach to their health and measure their male hormone levels from the comfort of their home. Even now, new Let's Get Check customers, even better, new Let's Get Check customers get 20% off by using our URL and code, which is trylgc.com front slash carnivoremd. That is trylgc, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash carnivoremd, C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-E-M-D. That's me, carnivoremd. Try LGC front slash carnivore MD. It's real easy. Here's how it works. First, you go to tryLGC.front slash carnivore, tryLGC.com front slash carnivore MD. Choose your delivery option. Choose your test online. It will deliver to you in discrete packaging with next day delivery. Collect your sample, activate your test kit in the morning, return your sample using the prepaid shipping label provided. Review your results. Once the sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. You'll get the results on five hormone levels, testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen, and your free androgen index. Consultation. Once your results are available, they will be reviewed by a physician. A nurse will then contact you for a consultation over the phone, providing you with care from diagnosis to treatment without ever having to go to a doctor's office or a laboratory. This is really cool stuff, you guys. I did this myself. I got the omega-3, I got the testosterone, I got the CRP in the mail. You do a finger stick, you collect it at home, and you mail it back to them. It works great. Um, Let's Get Checked Laboratories are all CLIA approved, which is the highest ranking level of accreditation, and all data is completely anonymized, anonymized to ensure that your privacy is maintained throughout the process. This test is going to let you know what is going on inside so you can take a scientific approach to approving your life. This is critical. You guys know I'm a fan of Nosotail Nutrition. That will provide you with increased male hormones as well, but you gotta know what your male hormones are. This isn't just for men who think they are in a funk. I really believe that all men should be testing their hormone levels in a regular cadence, and I do with my testosterone all the time. My testosterone is just over 800 right now on a carnivore diet, so uh-huh, I love it. Get 20% off at trylgc.com front slash carnivoremd with the code CARNIVOREMD. That is T-R-Y-L-G-C dot com slash CARNIVOREMD, C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-E-M-D. Do it. Getting tested is the responsible thing to do, and you will know. You will know. All right? So, all right, you guys, I hope you love that stuff. Um, I appreciate the sponsors. I also want to give a shout out to the folks at NutriSense, NutriSense.io. CGMs are so freaking valuable. They're so freaking valuable, you guys. And um, they have changed many lives seeing what your postprandial glucose levels are. And I want to give a shout out to my friends and peeps at Force of Nature Meats, forceofnaturemeats.com. These are also doing regeneratively raised meat and organs. Again, what you will hear from me is I like to support companies that help you get meat and organs that are good for you. Get the real stuff if you can. If you can't, check out Heart and Soil, heartandsoilsupplements.com. That is my passion project. A lot of these other companies are my friends, people I believe in, my family's passion projects, White Oak Pastures, Let's Get Checked, the, um, the folks at Force of Nature Meats and NutriSense.io, 
These are things I believe in. I think they will improve your life. On to the podcast. I love you all. Listen after for what is going on with me. Michael Ruscio, thanks for coming on, my man. It's good to see you. We're live. It's, it's great to be here. Man, I'm excited for this. You and I had a great conversation on your podcast, which is hopefully coming out in February sometime around the what time this one is coming Should out. Should be soon, yeah. Yeah, when my book is coming out. And I just thought, gosh, that was such a cool conversation. I want to get you on my podcast and talk about all these GI things and pick your brain about all sorts of things, the perspective of fiber, all this other stuff. So right. let's just, just give people a little bit of your background if they're not familiar with your work. I've been listening to your stuff from for many years. I used to go surfing on the Olympic Peninsula oh, coast nice. when I was in residency like four years ago before I was a carnivore. I had Michael Ruscio in the, you know, playing on the podcast Great. and listening to you talk awesome. to Allison Seibecker about SIBO. And I'm trying to puzzle out SIBO. You know, we're going to talk about SIBO. Is it real? Is right. it not? But tell people a little bit about your background, how you got interested in all this and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. I'll give you the, the shorter version. Um, when I was in college, I wanted to go into conventional medicine and I was kind of thinking about orthopedic surgery because no other reason than people said, well, you're kind of a, a burly guy and those guys tend to do good at surgery. So just do that. Um, so not really any great kind of focus on the plan. Um, but I ended up going from a college lacrosse playing athlete who felt almost invincible to crippling insomnia, brain fog, fatigue, depression, in the course of a few months. And it turned out that I had an intestinal parasite that was causing that, but I had gone to an internist, endocrinologist, GP, and they all said, well, yeah, you look good, you know, blood sugar, cholesterol, all these things look great, you got good muscle mass, low body fat, um, you know, you present well, you're, you know, you're, you're aware and your cognition seems good. So there's nothing that we can really see that is the matter. And then I would come back to you. Well, did you hear the part about me waking up like seven times per night and having depression? And, and you know, of course those doctors wanted to help, but they didn't have anything that they could find as the cause. Um, so thankfully at that same time I was doing kind of holistic um, exercise therapy training and got kind of wrapped up in some of these circles of other opinions on healthcare, got tangentially connected into functional medicine found a doctor that practiced functional medicine. He told me he thought I had a parasite. I thought, this guy's nuts, right? Because I didn't have diarrhea. I didn't have abdominal pain. Any of those signs that you would think to look for in an intestinal issue. This was my first lesson on the patient side of things, which is you can have an inflammatory issue in your gut solely manifesting neurologically, dermatologically, rheumatologically, and that was a huge thing for me to realize because it turned out that via the gold standard diagnostic stool antigen recognition, I had a parasitic infection, even though, again, no diarrhea, no abdominal pain, no bloating, um, mostly neurological and metabolic uh, complaints. And that totally changed the way I looked at everything regarding healthcare and medicine. And it really made me passionate about the importance of the gut. And I then went into alternative medicine training in natural medicine and in chiropractic because that's essentially the the gentleman dan kalish who treated me that's what he had done and that that just seemed like where i wanted to go um, so that was great but when i was studying in natural and integrative medicine there's a lot of dogma and i almost left three or four times to go into conventional medicine but i had buddies in conventional medical school who were thinking about leaving to go to natural medicine because no one was you know all the conventional guys were saying well it's so it's so by the book and it's so myopic and 
then on the natural side, I felt like there were so many heretics and there were so many loose claims. So it didn't seem like no matter where you went, there was going to be a good educational system for someone who wanted to practice. You know, if you want to do surgery, I think, great. Yeah. Hospital medicine, great for you. Yeah. But if you're thinking about progressive gut care, it didn't seem like alternative medicine nor conventional medicine had a really good educational plan for either one of those. So I said, well, I'll just finish the current course that I'm in. But it really made me someone who questioned beliefs. And as I started fact-checking things, there was many a thing I found that when I actually fact-checked were not true and were actually hurting people. Like this whole craze around gluten. Yes, it's a problem for some. Definitely non-celiac gluten sensitivity exists, but it's not the majority of the population. And when we represent it as such, we damage people who you know, um, go off gluten with no real objective or subjective evidence to support that. Um, so that spawned the podcast and the book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and, and some of the papers that I published, which is really trying to help people and be progressive, but not be a fool who just will parrot whatever everyone else is saying in the field or whatever the supplement rep tells me or whatever the lab company tells me. And you know, thankfully, it's been fairly well received, and it's really allowed me to take the best from this progressive model and leave the excessive testing, the crazy diets, the, the fear-based recommendations, and, and the overzealousness that oftentimes accompanies it. You know, it's, I really appreciate that about you. The whole time I've been listening to your podcast and knowing about your work, I've always appreciated the way that you kind of call out functional medicine. I actually <laughs> kind of hesitate to call myself a functional medicine provider anymore. Yeah, and we've had it. similar paths. I think we had similar philosophical paths because right. you know I was a physician assistant and I decided that I did not want to practice in that model, that I, I wasn't going to be happy simply doing a reactionary type of medicine that was only symptom-focused and pharmaceutical-based. I went on to medical school, and so I did traditional allopathic training and also lost my religion. You know, and then there were times that I thought, oh, man, you know, I, I've, as you know, an allopathic trained physician, I've thought the naturopathic ideas are more in line with my philosophy. But it's interesting that on both sides, people want to cross over, suggesting that Nobody's got it all right. I definitely think that, that mainstream Western medicine is incredibly myopic as well and, and can't see uh, the root cause of things. We are not taught to look for the root cause of things. And so it's funny that, you know, being two sides of the same coin here, we, we're both just kind of like throwing our hands up going, man, we need to kind of forge our own road. And I mean, you definitely know my work now and know that I do a lot of things that a lot of people don't agree with either. So in terms of carnivore diets and sure. ways of eating. So it's interesting being in the same space, trying to think outside of the box, trying to think what are the good things that we keep and what are the rest of the things that we discard kind of this Bruce Lee type concept, like take the truth, discard everything that falls away. But I definitely get worried about the way that I see a lot of mainstream functional medicine being practiced now and yeah. I, you've always called that out. I mean, from the very beginning. Yeah. It seems that maybe dogma is just kind of a human constant. It doesn't matter if you're in the conventional side or the alternative side, it's just a human constant and we have to solve for that. And uh, I guess that's a much more difficult problem to solve because it's more of a you know issue of uh, the human condition. But one of the things that's helped me is just not clinging to any one idea or philosophy and, and making you know, my shtick rather than being, let's take SIBO as just one point we can put in the board. SIBO is super prevalent. It's a problem for everyone. It's underdiagnosed, rah, rah, rah. Okay. I'll look at SIBO and I'll see what the research shows and I'll compare and contrast that with what I see in the clinic. And I'll try to come up with, with a reasonable view 
that doesn't pin me to any one philosophy where it, it, you know, SIBO has got to be a thing. It can't be challenged because it's my shtick. And now anything that counter, um, you know, uh, positions what I feel, I will, you know, fight vehemently. I, I've made my perspective more of, well, let's just try to be practical at this and look for the truth. And, and, um, yeah, I think that's where a lot of natural medicine will go. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the younger generation of doctors, you know, as us and having these conversations will help people have outlets where they can look to embrace people who are going to think outside the box. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic with our condition. I've always thought it's crazy that in all medical school, whether it's chiropractic, naturopathic or allopathic, we're probably all taught the adage that 50% of what we learn is wrong and is going to change. <laughs> And then everyone around you throws, you know, metaphorical rocks yeah. at you when you want to question the dogma. So, yeah. you know, everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, this is the, what we learned. Like, how can you question that? So anyway, so your, your clinic is mostly GI. What kind of stuff do you see there? What do you see people struggling with? It's so interesting that you've already highlighted for listeners that you don't even necessarily have to have GI symptoms to have a GI issue. In your case, a parasite. Huge. I believe yours was entamoeba histolytica, right? Correct. Yeah. See, I know you, Michael Ruscio. You do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what you know? What kind of stuff do you see people struggling with most in your clinic? And then I, let's jump into a conversation of some of that stuff. Yeah, and and just to kind of echo that one more time, it's such an important thing for people to realize that you can have a digestive problems solely manifesting non-digestively. And this is why one of the things I recommend people do is they start as step one in trying to improve their health with getting their, their diet and lifestyle in good working order. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? You don't have to be using an aura ring and have every measure in the blue. Um, you don't have to be eating the most perfect diet, but at least go from the bad job most people are doing and upgrade to at least being in the vicinity of, of healthy and then reevaluate. And if you still have symptoms, consider it the next thing you should do tending to your gut health. And, and the reason why I recommend that is you could go on the internet and read that I'm fatigued and depressed and I have dry skin. And so it's probably a thyroid problem and you will see people. And, and we've written up a number of case studies in our clinicians newsletter of people who floundered for years trying to be forced this thyroid diagnosis that was not the cause of the problem. And in a couple of months, we took these years of symptoms and resolved them in a couple of months. And even other doctors who read the newsletter have found this in their clinics and have applied the same principles and been able to do the same thing. So now we've kind of externally validated the, the concepts. And I throw that out there because thyroid is probably one of the most common symptoms people will arrive at when they're trying to research where their symptoms are coming from on the internet. So one of the things I would, I would say to people is, is start with your gut and, and don't overlook that. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm, my pre prelude there was so long, I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> Just what, what you generally see people struggling oh, with. Oh, in the clinic. In yeah, clinic. Sorry, yeah, sorry. What kind of conditions do you mostly see? I'd say there, there's probably about a 60-ish percent distribution of people who do have digestive symptoms. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there's a lot of people who will have gut symptoms. In fact, we just published a case study on our website with a patient named Mason who had chronic acid reflux that was treated with PPIs. The PPIs then started causing rashing. 
And he started going down and having all these other symptoms, mainly food reactivity, reflux, and rashing. And then we were able to repair his gut and, and recover him from those symptoms. But what I'm pointing to there is he had both a gut problem and a gut skin connection problem. So we'll see people in about 60% of cases, general estimation, that have some type of gas, bloating, reflux, abdominal pain, constipation, loose stools, diarrhea, um, some, some colitis of various sorts, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, whether it be ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. And most of them have other symptoms that they're pleasantly surprised to see improve. I'm sleeping better. I have less joint pain. My skin looks better. Um, and then there's another subset that don't necessarily have overt digestive symptoms, but they've honed in on the fact that they might be a gut etiology to begin with and want to be screened for that. And there, there's a fair number of these patients who are thyroid patients. After I've been harping on this in the podcast for a while, um, really disappointingly finding patients who've seen thyroid specialists and they had no objective lab evidence showing that they were hypothyroid, yet they were given the thyroid medication. They, they were told they were hypothyroid, this, this kind of reaching diagnosis that goes against any of the, the boundaries of how we interpret the labs, told their hypothyroid, put on medication, surprise, surprise, wasn't very helpful. Um, and in a, like I said a moment ago, a number of months, we were able to um, get them over their symptoms. But one thread there that I think ties into your audience, I'm assuming, who are interested in the carnivore diet is those who are food reactive. And this is, this is something definitely with the digestive patients you see a lot of. For some of these you know, brain, skin patients, the food reactivity is more latent, so it's harder to, to tie a direct relationship mm. to it. But you Temporally do see, latent, like it, yeah. it happens later, which is one of the tricky parts about food reactivity. Right. The reaction right. might happen long after the food. Interesting. Correct, correct. Um, but there does seem to be a theme, even in the non-GI primary symptom cohort, of I struggle with foods, right? I went on paleo, that helped. Then I went on AIP and that helped. But I'm, I'm losing ground you know, over the months or years, I feel like I'm becoming more reactive and I'm having to reclude to a smaller corner of dietary food, you know, dietary allowances in order to keep my symptoms at bay. And this is something I read about in Healthy Good Health You, which is, yes, we want to use diet, but we want to be careful not to force a dietary solution to what not, what might not be a dietary problem. And that's what I learned, right? I, I mean, at one point I was praying before I ate I was burning sage, playing an Indian wood flute, you know, just doing anything I could from a diet and lifestyle perspective, trying to what I thought was remedy stress or eating too fast. So I went to these crazy extremes and it wasn't the diet that was a problem in my case. I had already cleared the bar of where my diet should have been. And then from there, I was forcing dietary and lifestyle solutions to a non-dietary problem. So one of the things that I'm hoping to drive home with our discussion today is that if you're noticing this progressive intolerance to foods, then yes, mind your diet, and that's going to be part of the healing process. But there's some great tools we have that can help repair your gut and allow you to broaden your diet over time. Let's talk about those. I mean, I think let's just talk about where you start because... When I see somebody with a GI issue, I'm thinking, am I going to do longevity? Am I going to sequence their microbiome? Am I going to do a GI map? Am I going to do a GI effects? Like if somebody's wondering what's going on in their gut, I'm curious about your approach. Like where do you start with all this for people? Yeah, I mean, it's a great approach. 
so I've moved from a more lab centric assessment to more of a algorithmic approach. Uh-huh. And the reason, the reason for that is we have treatments that we know work well for a litany of gut disorders. What we have much less of is evidence showing that many of the labs are actually accurate mm. and can adequately guide treatment. So one of the ultimate travesties, in my opinion, is if you, if you think about all the different treatments that we have for the gut, we could organize them in a, in a decision-making tree. Start here. If that helps, go here. And if that doesn't help, go here. And Start there. And if that doesn't help, go here. And you can think about various diet interventions. You kind of have your, you know, eliminate processed foods. And you can tree out into potentially paleo, low FODMAP, paleo, low FODMAP, carnivore. Try those. And then depending on that, you can go to probiotics as an intervention. You can go to antimicrobials from there. You can go to immunoglobulins. You can go to various gut-supported nutrients. You might incorporate fasting into there. Um, and so when you organize these things into a, a decision-making tree, you come away with a very accurate way of walking someone through the process of restoring their gut ecology because it is an ecosystem and it's complicated. So you oftentimes need more than one thing. If you had a garden that was dying, you wouldn't just spray a bunch of water and say, I'm done, right? You think about water, sunshine, nutrition, maybe tilling. And that's, that's kind of what you do with a more algorithmic approach, you navigate someone the supports that can help push and pull their gut ecosystem into a healthy direction, and you use a response to guide how you tend the garden to cultivate a healthier soil. That works really well. What's challenging about testing, and we've, we've published a number of these case studies in our clinician's newsletter, someone can come in on day one and then on uh, with symptoms, and then on day 60, their symptoms are much better, if not totally gone, yet some of the labs look worse, which I think tells us there are some major holes in what we can do with lab testing. There, there is some benefit to be had there uh, with, with testing. A SIBO breath test can be helpful, and a screen for parasites also can be helpful. But we come back to this whole thing of, we know that diet can help with SIBO, at least ostensibly. We certainly know that for parasites, fungus, bacteria, and for SIBO, probiotics can be very helpful. We also know that either antibiotics or antimicrobial herbs can help with these more stubborn fungal and bacterial and even parasitic overgrowths. And there's some data showing that if you pair the antimicrobial therapy with probiotics, it's even more effective. Um, so do you kind of see how if we, na- you know, the, the test results don't really change how we'd funnel someone exactly. through that, that thought tree, which is why I've been doing less testing and, and ironically getting better results. So the top of the decision tree is diet, right? Is that how you would think about it? Diet, and, diet and lifestyle, yeah. Diet and lifestyle. And of those diets, you talked about paleo, autoimmune paleo, carnivore, things like this, ketogenic diets. When we did our um, podcast together for your podcast, I think I asked you, or you said that that you use the carnivore diet in your practice. Is that still the case? I've been using the carnivore diet now probably for about maybe four months, I want to say. Uh, and, I, and I look at it, you know, the way I picture diets in my mind, many things I picture um, is kind of in that decision tree where, or, or another way you could think of it is a, a pyramid where you start with the foundational and you work your way up. Mm-hmm. So a basic elimination diet would be the foundation. And then if you wanted to get more strict, and it kind of depends on how the person responds. Let's say you eliminate 
um, gluten, dairy, soy, and processed foods. And the person gets a lot better. That tells us that inflammatory foods might be the direction we want to advance in. So autoimmune paleo brings you further in that direction. However, right. if in doing that, they see no response or they even regress, there's a fair likelihood going from a you know, baseline American diet to an elimination diet, they're going to be increasing fruit and vegetable and fiber intake. And inadvertently, they may have increased their FODMAP intake. So if that first direction doesn't pan out, we may want to move over to low FODMAP and see how they do there. Um, and then you know, the, the low FODMAP diet can advance to low FODMAP with SCD. It's this kind of pairing diet. I usually don't use that now anymore because I don't, I don't find people need to go that advanced. But essentially, step one, basic elimination, you could call it maybe like a loose paleo. Then depending on the response, you go to AIP, autoimmune paleo, or uh, iteration of low FODMAP. And then one of the final things I consider next for these really recalcitrant cases that aren't responding is carnivore is kind of the, the pinnacle. And it's not because, well, I do have some concerns with carnivore. Um, I, just like I have concerns with vegetarian, anything that's highly restricted, even low FODMAP, you know, strict adherence in the long term, I don't like. I want people to be able to have the broadest diet over time rather than the most narrow. So I look at these, these restrictions as a way to gain healing ground so that we can heal, the tissues are more robust, the system's less inflamed and less responsive, and we can get them to a broader diet in the longer term. Now, how much they want to eat there, you know, that's up to them, but at least they have the capability to go as broad as possible. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned in that first interview was that the carnivore diet didn't help everyone, but it, it was a pretty big number that you thought, like you said, I think in that interview, you said you felt like three-fourths of people saw a pretty significant improvement on a carnivore diet. Is that number changed or is that about similar? I'd say it's, it's closer to about 60% as mm -hmm. I've had a chance to work with more, which is still good. And also keep in mind that, that that's in a population that's failing out of other dietary exactly. iterations. So it's a more challenging population. But I, I do think, and th this is what I wish I had better data to report back on, but the initial trend I seem to be observing is the same as it follows when you're doing a redirection from paleo or autoimmune paleo or low FODMAP is the people, the more sensitive the person is, the more they need these other therapies in that tree to improve their gut health, to allow them to go through the reintroduction more successfully. In addition to a diet. So we're talking probiotics, right. perhaps specific immunoglobulins. We can talk about all that kind of stuff. Yep, exactly. Now, so let's just dwell on, let's just, let me just ask you this real quickly. I'll be curious what your concerns are with the carnivore diet. And then I want to get your take on fiber because don't we need fiber for a healthy microbiome, my friend? I mean, right. obviously well, my listeners know I'm joking. Yeah, but. yeah. And, and, that, and, I mean, and that's something, so a good example, um, and I, I tell this story a lot, so if, you're, if your audience has heard it, I'll apologize, but this is going back to maybe the 2016, 2015 um, paleo panel on gut health. It's always an interesting chance for me to see what other you know, experts are are. Um, recommending because I normally I just read research I, I don't really listen to many other podcasts and such because at this point I just get so frustrated sometimes if I'm being totally honest um, except my podcast you can listen to my podcast and your Instagram page is probably one of the best ones I've seen so I mean, those, <laughs> those shirtless videos are just they're, they're <laughs> people like that <laughs> um, so there was all this discussion about how important fiber was for one's gut health yet when I was writing Healthy Good Healthy You and also taking what I was learning from the research literature and using that to inform what I do in the clinic and then observing actual real world patient responses, what I was seeing was both the literature and the real world application 
didn't reinforce that people must have a higher fiber intake to be healthy. And in fact, I even went as far as to counter argue that for those with sensitive digestion, that can oftentimes be the exact opposite of what they need to do. Now, there is evidence showing that increasing fiber intake can improve IBS, can improve IBD, but there's also those who doing that will flare the IBS and flare the IBD. Um, and then when I went into the comparative research on fiber, which was a point at which I almost quit writing the book, my research assistant sent me 157 pages of PubMed abstracts. And I've learned now how to better kind of parse these, but it was daunting to go through. But eventually what I came away with was, here's the dividing line, here's the studies showing that fiber helps, here's the studies that show fiber has no, offers no benefit, and we're gonna organize them from meta-analysis all the way down through observational. You mean like a forest plot? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, uh, do you know what a forest plot is? Uh, and, and, and so when I went through that, it was pretty clear to see that while, yes, there was evidence showing that people would improve from increasing their fiber intake, that was greatly attenuated when you did the obvious thing of control for the healthy user effect. And when you juxtapose both the positive and negative data points, when I say negative, I mean, it's not like fiber is going to hurt you, uh, except for flaring some people. But when you're looking at cardiovascular mortality and you know all-cause mortality, you know, increasing fiber, I don't think ever has been correlated with increased chance of death. But it, there's about equivalent data showing that it may help you as to there's no health benefit uh, you know, vectored from it. And then when we, when we combine that with the fact that the people who are searching for how to improve their health because they're food reactive, and especially if they have gut conditions of various sorts, cramming them into the high fiber pathway oftentimes is, is the worst thing that you can do. Now, again, eventually we want to heal them so that if they want to eat a high fiber diet, they can. But I, I think I was one of the first people to, to kind of make that argument. And yeah, it's important that we disclose that and not just kind of platitudinously say, because it seems like a safe bet, well, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, which I generally agree with, right? I'm not in disagreement on that, but I don't think we can accurately say that you must increase your fiber and prebiotic intake in order to have a healthier gut or to preempt various diseases. And can we also say the reverse, that in people who choose to remove those foods, they are not necessarily doing something harmful to their gut or their gut flora? I would agree with that as long as we have the stipulation that someone over time is going to be trying to move to the broadest diet possible. Just because I think that's a, it's a good hedge, and I, and I don't mean to make kind of a vague hedge, but I, I'd rather someone have the goal of eating a diverse array of foods than eating more narrowed. I think that's a fairly tenable statement to make as long as it's personalized to the individual. And it's also important to your point to point out that the low FODMAP diet research makes some of the most compelling evidence points for this argument. Low FODMAP diets reduce prebiotics, which are what feed the gut bacteria. And they've been shown to reduce leaky gut, reduce inflammatory cytokines. In fact, uh, Tarek Mazalwi, who is on the podcast, who is a uh, Norwegian researcher, I believe is where he's based, has actually done some elegant studies in, in his research group where they've shown that a low FODMAP diet actually significantly increased the density of serotonin and PYY cells in the gut, which regulate pain reception and motility. So there might really be this healing that we can see that underlies low FODMAP diet, which reinforces my hypothesis, which is we need to use these tools to kind of tend that garden and allow someone to heal 
increased serotonin, increased PYY, less leaky gut, less inflammation. And then over time, someone should improve their health and be able to tolerate a broader diet. Yeah. And just, I'm glad we came back to FODMAP. I just want to clarify this for people. We're using some acronyms. This podcast will probably be released after some of the other ones I've done dealing with gut stuff. So people may be familiar if they're listening to the podcast regularly. SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We'll talk about it probably a little bit on this podcast, perhaps not the most accurate term, but it's a colloquial term. FODMAP is fermentable oligo dye monosaccharides and polyols. So basically it's all of these sugars that are fermentable by the gut, essentially resistant starches and polyols, things like sorbitol, erythritol, these kinds of sugars, these sugar alcohols. Um, that are strong so, prebiotics, yeah. Strong prebiotics. And so what you're saying, which is so cool, is that removing fermentable fibers, fermentable sugars, and fermentable sugar alcohols normalizes leaky gut, improves serotonergic transmission, or at least serotonergic cell populations, improves PYI, PYY, which is peptide YY in the gut, which is sort of an incretin hormone. And so we, when removing these things for people who have inflamed guts, we can see normalization, which is perhaps one of the reasons that a carnivore diet is helpful, either in the short term. It's an extension of that same concept, you know, loosely said in my mind, yeah. Yeah, a carnivore diet's like the ultimate, ultimate low FODMAP diet, in my opinion. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned in the first podcast we did was that you felt like the more inflamed somebody's gut was, the less they were able to tolerate vegetables and plants. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a fairly safe hypothesis that there, there does seem to be that trend in the IBS and IBD literature um, and, and, and this is where I think the elemental diet came from. An elemental diet is essentially a meal replacement, like a protein shake, but it's a full meal replacement that has zero residue or zero fiber and prebiotics in it because there was the observation that, boy, that seemed to really help and even has been shown to be as effective as prednisone in quelling the inflammation and symptoms that we see in inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, the more you look in, in, in the literature, you start seeing examples that, well, yes, there, there is data showing that fiber and prebiotics will help people. So it's important not to just you know make this absolutist spectrum here, but there's also data showing that some people really benefit from reducing their fiber and their prebiotic intake. And there's that very widely quoted famous study that most of my listeners will be aware of in which the complete removal of fiber resulted in 100% resolution of idiopathic constipation. So in a, in a, right. a, you know, a group of 20 people, uh, you know, that was divided, uh, it was a group of 60 divided into three groups. So that's a fascinating study as well. Yeah. But also, so, also important to mention there, just, just to kind of make sure we're, we're kind of countervailing it and trying to get both sides, there is ample evidence showing that soluble fiber can be helpful for constipation. Um, and then I think we come down to, well, what do I do? There's some studies showing that no fiber helps. There's other studies showing that using fiber helps for constipation, that is. That's where we come to that tree. And, and we take all the possible options and we try to organize them as logically as we can for someone. And that's, that's exactly what I do on Healthy Gut, Healthy You, which is try to give people the roadmap. Because if you're, if you're just doing this by sound bite to sound bite, it's hard to have that larger map to guide you through how to navigate these different pieces. And we, we've mentioned that a few times. I just want to make sure people know we can talk about this at the end of the podcast as well. You have a book. It's called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's a really great GI book. If you guys need a resource, check that one out too. So we'll plug it again at the end of the book. But just so people know what we're talking about when we say healthy gut, healthy you. Yeah, thank, thank you for the definitions. I'm, I'm going right to the- <laughs> that's, uh, that's your book. And it's, it's, it's a here. great resource for people. And it does really lay it out for people um, in a way that's that's, you know, 
I think um, compatible with a lot of my ideas too. Of course, we have some unique uh, ideas, but there's a lot, I think there's a great roadmap for people. It's a really valuable resource. So that's awesome for people to know about. So as we're going through this and we're thinking here, any ideas, any thoughts, any speculations about why the removal of fiber, why the removal of prebiotics might be helpful for people in these situations? What do you think is going on? Maybe I'll offer some of my hypotheses, but the overarching context here, and we've kind of touched on this, is that, and I'll be curious if you agree with this, is that I think that a lot of autoimmune disease, I think a lot of inflammatory disease, whether it's dermatologic, psychiatric, you know, rheumatologic, joint-based, whatever, starts in the gut. And this is kind of the thesis that I advance in my book, which is that for some people, for a lot of people, plant foods might be triggering this inflammation by causing inflammation. And so it's so fascinating for me to hear you say something that I talk about in my book, which is that by removing plant fibers, plant compounds, maybe we can improve leaky gut. And we're seeing that in patients with these low FODMAP diets. What do you think is going on there? Um, why do you think the removal is helping some of these people? I guess it's just, we're just hypothesizing now, but I'd be curious for your opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're generally in, in agreement there. And there's a few things that I, I think about. Um, one, one backdrop, and, and this is one of the things that, that I also discuss in Healthy Good Health Year. It's kind of one of the foundational premises that I lay and I develop throughout the read for people is it's not just about your gut bacteria. And with the, the, the boom in popularity of microbiota research, you're just hearing so much about these people in Africa eat these high fiber diets and they're super healthy and they have low autoimmune disease and people with healthier, um, who people who are healthier have what we think are more healthier, more diverse microbiotas, which is wrong for a whole litany of reasons. But what ends up happening is th th this false narrative tends to run away that feed the gut bacteria, the gut bacteria make you healthier and therefore, and then you'll have less symptoms or less disease risk. And what's really being forgotten there is, yes, there's this amassment of gut bacteria in the gut, but they're also housed by the immune system in the gut that has to be calibrated to live with them in harmony. And most people now have probably heard that our hygienic society, while it's done a lot of goods for us, also tends to cripple the development of our immune system, making us more prone to inflammation, autoimmune disease, and environmental and food reactivity. So when you have this microbiota, the mass in the gut, and the immune system regulating it, if there's already a, a tense relationship there, it seems reasonable to conclude that if you feed the microbiota, then the immune system that's already kind of like quick to attack it could be easily flared. And this is likely why we see with the diets like the low FODMAP that reduces the degree of colonization, that leads to less inflammation. Because it's likely that we're, we're reducing some of what the immune system is overzealously monitoring and perhaps not getting along with. So, excuse me, in my opinion, that's probably one of the main reasons why we need to be cognizant of the fact that we shouldn't just indiscriminately feed gut bacteria, but also look to make sure that we're not making the immune system go haywire by, by just kind of vacuously throwing fermentable substrate into the gut and expecting that to you know, have a favorable impact. It's like taking soldiers and giving them a bunch of bullets, but giving them no target practice and expecting them somehow to have better aim. It's, it's a, you know, you're missing some important stuff there, which would be the practice, which our immune systems don't tend to get. And, and so you know, we have to think through these things a little bit more 
broadly rather than just this narrow feed the bacteria, feed the good bacteria, therefore I'll be healthy. What's fascinating for me is the way that the populations in the gut microbiome shift. It's, uh, it appears that it's not so much that bacterial populations decrease, it's that some decrease and others increase as we shift the diet. And so yep. there was this really interesting study uh, done with a carnivore diet. It was only a week long, but they compared a carnivore diet. You're probably familiar with this one to a, to a plant-based diet. And what they saw was just a shift in the microbiome. And as I've mentioned before on multiple podcasts, they didn't see any change in the alpha diversity. So you mentioned this concept, which people really get up in arms about, like we need fiber for a diverse microbiome. And I am not aware of any interventional data to support that. Maybe you, you are, please share if you are, but that concept seems to me to come from epidemiology observational studies, like you are suggesting, where we look at indigenous people and we say, hey, they have a diverse microbiome and they're eating lots of fiber. Therefore, fiber equals diverse microbiome, which is false, right? Because we know that they're also killing animals and touching animals and being in the dirt and being in the sun and drinking you know, uh, spring water or drinking free-flowing water. There are so many things that could affect the diversity of a microbiome beyond fiber. And in the interventional studies, like this one, when we remove fiber, the alpha diversity doesn't decrease. And when we add fiber to the diet, alpha diversity doesn't increase. And so yep. I, I, I really... Um, when people say this, I'm always kind of scratching my head, like, why do people think that, why are people so hung up on the fact that we need plant fiber for a diverse microbiome? It doesn't yeah. make... It's a simple, yeah, it's, it's a simple kind of canard to cling to, but it's a canard nonetheless. And, and the other thing, they're just kind of piggybacking what you're saying, because it's, it's such a great point. We have, I don't want to say ample, but we have fairly compelling preliminary evidence showing that the health of the host dictates the health of the microbiota. So it's not just this inward out, it's also exactly. this, this outward in. Exercising, sedentary people who exercise and they're surely tracked over time show healthier microbiotas. Vitamin D has been shown to improve the health of microbiota. UV light? Um, sun exposure, UV light. At least um, in associations. And there's one or two studies showing that type 1 diabetics, when they actually receive insulin treatment to regulate their blood sugar, also see a healthier microbiota. That's so, fascinating. And, and what that tells you is very likely the health of the host has a big impact. And so that's why you have to be very careful with these observational studies. Healthier people have more diverse microbiotas, which does seem to be generally true, but it's not telling you how do you fix the cause. If you take a person with IBS who is highly food reactive and you force feed them prebiotics, or a better yet example is inflammatory bowel disease. You will flare their disease and you will highly increase the likelihood that they may need some kind of immunosuppressive drug or God forbid, some type of resecting surgery. Um, so, you know, there's more to the microbiota than just the amount of substrate we feed them. This is such an important point. I just want to emphasize this for people. I love that you said this because it's a concept that I think is very important and I've talked about another podcast as well. It's bi-directional. And when we see an unhealthy gut, quote unquote, when we see an unhealthy gut microbiota, whether it's low diversity or inflammation in the setting of a disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, these inflammatory bowel diseases are a great example. People will point to those diseases or diabetes and insulin resistance and say, hey, look, they have a low diversity in the microbiome. And the inference there, the incorrect inference, is that the low diversity in the microbiome is causing ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, or worsening right. insulin resistance, when in fact, it's probably bi-directional and possibly significantly going the other way. 
when you become, when we become, if we become insulin resistant, we are probably going to affect the immunologic tolerance of our gut microbiome. We are probably going to affect the health of our gut negatively, and that is going to cause a less diverse microbiome. So in that case, it's all of a holistic thing. We can't, similarly, we can't just focus on fixing the gut microbiome, quote unquote. And as we know, you can't just shove fiber into somebody to fix the gut microbiome. The microbiome, when it's disrupted, dysbiosis is not necessarily a fiber deficiency. It's much more complex than that. I love that you talk about it as an ecosystem. And to rehabilitate an ecosystem, you have all these nodes that you have to affect positively. So we can't just shove fiber into somebody with ulcerative colitis or diabetes and expect things to get better. It's bi-directional. And we see this so often in medicine. This is just such a (laughs) philosophical error that people think Think they don't, we don't even know which way the arrow of causality is going, and we so often assume that we know the direction it's going, when in fact it's going in the opposite direction. TMAO is a great example of this. Right. People are probably familiar with trimethylamine oxide. I talked about this on a previous podcast with Tommy Wood. But levels of TMAO, higher levels of TMAO, are associated with heart disease. Okay, so everyone in medicine says TMAO causes heart disease. Therefore, you should limit choline and carnitine, which are valuable nutrients for your brain and your antioxidant defense system. Except what we find when we do the research is that insulin resistance also raises TMAO. And insulin resistance also increases our risk of cardiovascular disease. And so it's probably a a reverse causality, meaning that insulin resistance is causing TMAO to rise and TMAO looks like it's abnormal when in fact it has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, it's just such a funny thing and people are so quick to just grab onto something in medicine without teasing it apart. So I love that you highlighted this. It's bi-directional. And if you are not healthy and your gut microbiome is not healthy, those are communicating on a two-way street. Yeah. And that's that's really, in my opinion, the difference between long-term success with your gut or just a short-term flicker of improvement. And I think looking at rifaximin, which is the antibiotic that's FDA approved for diarrheal type IBS, which I think is a pretty good drug, all things considered. But when we look at that and the way it's used oftentimes, what you'll hear is, well, I used it and then I you know, got worse after a few months. The recurrence of SIBO, yeah. this is common quote. Yeah. And, you know, this really frustrates me because patients become so scared of SIBO and they really shouldn't be. But when you have a monotherapeutic approach to fixing an ecosystem, what do you think is going to happen? When all these factors are inputting the gut and coaxing it into a negative direction, and then you give one therapy that gives this temporary reprieve, and then it's removed after two weeks as rifaximin is, what do you think is going to happen if all these inputs aren't addressed? Your diet, are you using any kind of probiotics? Are you getting enough sleep, enough exercise? Um, maybe there's this level of inflammation from high immune system tone that would be remedied by going lower FODMAP or using periodic elemental diets to kind of quell that, that tenuous relationship between the, the um, microbiome and the immune system. And this is really the difference between success and failure is understanding that a monotherapeutic approach, just like antibiotics, or people have used herbal antimicrobials or just used a probiotic, and they saw a flicker of improvement, it's because you need to have these other positive inputs encouraging the microbiota in the right direction. And once you have all of those, then some kind of nudge, like an antibiotic or an antimicrobial, that will help skew the balance a little bit. So what can kind of happen is, in, in my opinion anyway, 
a hypothesis, is you get the skewing of populations in the gut in a negative direction. Some of the unsavory players tend to do better in an inflammatory environment. So they kind of get a foothold. Right. And so they get a foothold and push down on some of the other guys. And it's hard for that to rectify itself completely. Now, if you have all these healthy inputs in place, that's really kind of encouraging this skewing back to balance. And this is when a strategic nudge with either rifaximin or an antimicrobial herb helps kind of kick up the equilibrium. And now there, there's a better chance for the good players when we have all these positive inputs to the gut to re- recover to a better balance. And that's how you maintain longer term resolution after some kind of antimicrobial therapy. So don't you think we could rebrand the carnivore diet as an elemental diet? It's low residue, right? It's I mean, yeah. the carno- carnivore elemental diet. Carnivore elemental. <laughs> just the newest thing in SIBO. We're yeah, going to revolutionize SIBO yeah. treatment, my man. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very, very similar concept. In, in fact, we, um, you know, if plans go according to Target, we'll be releasing the first ever of its kind. I'm super excited about it, a low-carb elemental diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's not carnivore, but, you know, what we're trying to do is is – modify the diet a little bit to make it more befitting to people who like to have a lower carb intake because one of the challenges with elemental diets is they're fairly high carb so yeah i mean whether you do carnivore which i'm totally open to or you want a meal replacement shake they have the the commonality of reducing fiber and prebiotics which you know is so antithetical to what most of the media or whatever would have you believe but yeah that can be quite healing for the gut Yeah. And in the people that I work with, I I do try and stay open to the fact that we may want to increase the diet in the future, but I'm just curious, I'll get your take on this and then we'll move on. I want to talk a little bit about probiotics and some of these other adjunctive therapies is, you know, if, 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 if you were to see a patient, for instance, who said, oh man, I feel great on a carnivore diet. I heard about this crazy doc. He likes to surf. His name's Paul Saladino. I do this nose to tail thing. I eat some fat. I eat some organs. I just want to stay on this diet long-term. What, would you have any concerns about that? Just, I'm just curious your opinion. It may be different than what I think, but I just think the counterpoints are valuable. Like, what would you think about a long-term carnivore diet? Any concerns there if somebody is getting nose to tail and getting nutrients? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can't say that I've, I've done the research to really have a, a evidence-informed conclusion on this. So mine is more just, I guess, philosophical. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only reservation I have there would be the same reservation with someone who eats vegetarian or only low FODMAP, which is it seems reasonable that having all the food groups in your diet would be a hedge against some type of unintended deficiency, A, and maybe more importantly, maybe equally as important, is someone's quality of life. Uh, you know, and this is one of the things I see with gluten and dairy. For people who can finally bring some of that back into their diet, they really feel like their social avenues have become lubricated and, and are, are less kind of um, you know challenging. Now, the one thing I would weigh that against would be if someone doesn't ever get to a point where they can reintroduce plant foods or FODMAPs, I don't you tell people, well, you've got to be eating these in order to be healthy. So what I try to aim for is repairing someone's gut so they can eat as broad as possible, giving them that opportunity and encouraging them probably to, yes, try to eat as broadly as possible, just as a general hedge and also convenience factor. But if someone can't get to the point where they're able to do that, if they've gone through all the, the healing therapies for the gut, then I don't, 
I don't force them into eating food that we think should make you healthier. So I don't, I mean, I know that's not fully answering your question. I might be dodging the question a little bit, but that's generally the, the stance that I take. No, it's reasonable. I accept, and I talk about this in my book as well, that if people want to eat plants for entertainment, for color, for variety, or for social norms, I think that's reasonable. Uh, I just, uh, one of the things that I find so fascinating, and perhaps this will become the focus of my future work, is the spectrum of plant toxicity and how we can see which plants are more and less toxic. And I had a recent interesting conversation with my friend Tommy Wood about kind of our genetic makeup and our genetic history, which we can't ever really tease out now because there's been um, <clears throat> so much, I think the world is so cosmopolitan now that we're not from a lineage and we can fly sure. and our ancestors from all over the world, which is amazing. But I think that what we used to have with humans was where our ancestors had always lived in the same space for thousands of years. And what's so interesting about that, even if we were somewhat industrialized or, um, you know, before there was so much movement of food, certainly when we were indigenous peoples and hunter gatherers, is if we were exposed to plants, we were probably exposed to a certain subset of plants, and perhaps our body developed the ability, the genetic ability to detoxify those polyphenols and other compounds more than others. And now what we've got is some incredible mixing where maybe there are some people who really don't do well with resveratrol or really don't do well with curcumin or really don't do well with quercetin, but they can detoxify this other polyphenol really well. And of course, that's just sort of my perspective, but I thought that was kind of an interesting um, yeah, point is, that came up yeah. between Tommy, like we don't even know sort of what, because it, it's so fascinating to think that the, the, the phase one and the phase two detoxification systems in humans probably developed evolutionarily as a response to our ingestion of plant toxins. I mean, that's what they do, right? The CYP450 systems do this, you know, hydrolysis, this cyclization, this oxidation, this hydroxylation of compounds to generally detoxify them. And then we go to phase two, where you're going to get glucuronidation or other detoxification mechanisms. These are probably in response to plant toxins. And some of us might've seen a certain plant toxin for thousands of years and be really good at detoxifying it. And then the next person just can't detoxify it at all, but we're mixing them all together. And now we're flying in plants from South America, which are, I mean, it's just a interesting theory of it's kind of the way that it's all mixed together and some people might not be able to tolerate it but if people can tolerate it i think it's fine to put it back in their diet but the spectrum of plant toxicity is kind of fascinating for me um and i think that you and i would probably both agree that animal foods are very nutrient rich and a good foundation of any diet yep and i think uh, it was um uh, was it chris lalonde or matt, sorry, matt lalonde who who presented yeah. at, at the Ancestral Health Symposium, maybe it was 2014, and he really did an amazing job of, of showcasing how nutrient-dense plant foods are. Uh, and I think there's definitely some good evidence to support that. And, plant and foods or animal foods? Sorry, animal foods, yeah. Okay. How, how nutrient-dense animal foods are. Um, and I think your plant hypothesis is interesting, and it'd be great if one day we actually had a test that could do what many current tests purport to do, which is tell you exactly what you know, foods you should or should not eat. But that would be certainly a helpful clinical tool. Yeah, I think we try to approach that with elimination diets and reintroduction now. Yeah, and it's you're right. Kind yeah. of and we have tools that do work for that. I mean, and, and I that's why I don't do food allergy testing. It's not super accurate for a number of reasons, although there is some evidence showing that you get some clarity, but you can get that same clarity from eliminate and reintroduce. And if you look at some of the food allergy literature, what comes up? Dairy, gluten, soy, nuts. I mean, these are things that we already have codified into paleo and, and AIP and yeah. Yeah, I think those are the biggest ones for people to eliminate. Dairy, gluten, soy, corn, nuts, seeds, grains. Those are the biggest ones. Go from yep. there. 
And so let's talk about probiotics a little bit before we wrap it up here, because this is something I know you're quite interested in. I've been using these with my clients and seen some improvements, but I think you use them all the time with your people. How do you think about probiotics? I know in the book you divide it into four or five different types of probiotics, but I think as an adjunct to diet, um, let's talk about how you might use that in someone. Yeah. Thank you for asking the question because it is something I'd be remiss if we didn't cover. Um, one of the most helpful clinical tools that I have found, bar none, has been probiotics. Not the only thing, but, and, and we've we published now, gosh, I want to say four, maybe five case studies in our clinician's newsletter of, you know, the, the history essentially looks like this. I've been on a few different diets, I've seen a few different doctors, I've had some lab testing, and I've kind of spun my wheels, you know, paleo, low FODMAP, probiotics, antimicrobials, gastroenterologists, naturopaths, chiropractors, whatever. And the one thing that we do differently is, is A, you know, we, we try to personalize their diet, although most people who come into the clinic have already done some tinkering and have a general sense of what diet works best for them, so that change is fairly minimal. But the other is that we use the, the three categorical types of probiotics together. And it's been amazing that in some cases, that has been all that we've needed to do in order to completely resolve their symptoms. And for those that it doesn't, I'd say a good majority of them will see a noticeable improvement and get kind of close to their goal. And that's when the, the ecosystem is really kind of being primed, like we talked about, to tip back to this balance. And that's when we finally have the success with a small nudge of antimicrobials. So whether it be completely something that can be reparative or kind of give us a huge step forward to where we only need a small nudge with a subsequent antimicrobial, the three categorical types used together has been super effective. And it, it took me probably about 10 years to figure this out. Um, so if, if you look at all the probiotic research, and actually I can pull up a little aid here. Do, do you... Um, you ever do yeah. screen shares or am I yeah, going to break, yeah. break this ship here? Okay. So this is available on our homepage. It's our probiotic starter guide. I wanted to try to give people kind of the, the quick primer on this. What's your homepage? Where's the website? Um, it's drrusco.com right here. D-R-R-U-S-C-A-O.com. That's, oh wait, you can't see my screen yet. Duh. I got to click a button. You know, one day with Neuralink, what I think will actually happen, but we're not, we're not there just yet. Okay, so here's our, um, yeah, so sorry, here, here's our website. You can see this, right? Yep, I can yeah. see it. So for people that are listening, this is going to be on the YouTube video. You can find this, but it's going to be at drruscio.com front slash probiotics dash starter dash guide. Yeah, and if you just slash. go to drruscio.com, yeah. on the homepage, there's a, it's called probiotic starter guide. It's a little mm -hmm. thumbnail. Um, so here's the thing, I the visual, okay, so here's your, your three categorical types. And, and if you look at, the probiotic literature long enough, you start to see this emerge that most probiotics are not combinations of all the different categorical types, but rather they're either a lactobacillus and bifidobacterium predominated blend. They are a Saccharomyces boulardii, which is actually not a bacteria, it's a fungus, mm -hmm. or they are a soil based or spore forming. Mm -hmm. And eventually you see enough studies. So category one, there's about 500 trials using some iteration of a lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strain blend. Now they differ slightly from formula to formula, but you will also see a number of different formulas showing benefit for IBS, showing benefit for constipation, showing benefit for mood, all of the category one designation. Now, 
again, do they have seven strains? Do they have 10 strains? Do they have 15? They vary a little bit in that sense. But if you're looking to simplify this, that's a great point to simplify too, that these various iterations of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains can be classified as category one, and they all have pretty impressive benefit when you look at the totality of the 500 trials here. Saccharomyces boulardii, there's about 100 studies using Saccharomyces boulardii. And then the new kid on the block, popular in the paleo community, is your soil-based probiotics. And this group has about 14 clinical trials. There's, there's about 20 from Asia using a couple of additional strains. So we could even say that there's about 34 total trials, but less. But what you see is here is really the landscape. And, and this is what it ties down to in terms of relevance. So we've talked about this whole concept of establishing the balance in the gut ecosystem. This is how I'm coming to think about this now. If you use one probiotic, that's like one leg of support into the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And it can get you there. For some people, that will be adequate. And that's great. That means you're a simple case. Your gut just needs a little bit of a touch and you got there. But I think what happens in more cases is they see a partial benefit, but not anything to write home about. And this is where if we combine the lactobifido blend that kind of supports one niche, the Saccharomyces boulardii, a fungus, a little bit different, supports another niche, it's non-lactic acid forming. And then the soil-based probiotics supports yet another niche, at least hypothetically. This seems to be why some patients will do better with all three of these used in conjunction. And so that, that's where I think there, there's really something unique to offer regarding probiotics. And again, it took me about 10 years to piece that all together, but now I have people go right into this. And it's amazing to see how quickly some people will respond when they just get those three supports in place at the same time. What about uh, Mutiflor? Do you use much E. coli in a seal? I've recommended it, but you can't buy it here. So we can't carry it in the office. Um, we refer people to a website in Canada, but they have a heck of a time shipping. I mean, some patients right. have said it takes three weeks. And of course, the ice pack is fully melted by then. Right. Um, and, and sometimes it gets held up in customs. Uh, so for some patients, they've, they've really liked it. It's just it's so hard to get it to someone that mm -hmm. I haven't really integrated it much into my practice. But I'm, I'm certainly open to it. Mm -hmm. And so for Saccharomyces boulardii, I like Floristore because when I'm using probiotics, I want the specific strain. Um, do you get that specific? Do you have specifics that you like for Saccharomyces boulardii? I like the Floristore because it's a specific strain of Saccharomyces boulardii. Yeah, you're asking a great question. And so there's another aid I'll just put up here really quick because um, you're hinting on in part one other item, which is quality assurance with probiotics. And, and this again is in the starter guide, but I think it's just worth noting that uh, one study looked at 26 commercial probiotics and found none of them fully supported their label claims. Um, another study, this is by Labdoor, uh, an SF-based kind of independent lab company, found that 43% of the probiotics assessed contained less than half the amount of the probiotic listed on the label. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not to say go buy the most expensive probiotic on the market. I think you don't need to do that. Um, but you do want to make sure you clear this, this quality assurance bar. Um, these are the three that I use. These, these are the three that I've developed. Mm -hmm. And I will say that it's not easy. We, we went to an exposition for contract manufacturers, and we had maybe, I'm just estimating, at least 70 
manufacturers, and then we filter them through our quality assurance screening, and only five came out the other side. Yeah. So, um, you know, and again, I'm always careful because the quality assurance claims are something that I feel like a lot of cell phone companies hide behind as a marketing angle and a way to jack the price. Um, but you know, when you look at the information I just shared in terms of 43% of probiotics don't meet their label claims, that might be another part of the reason why people say, well, you know, I went to Whole Foods, I tried a probiotic, I went to CVS or Costco, and I didn't really see much of a response. It might be because of some of these quality assurance corners being cut. Um, so, so I think that's an argument or at least an urging for people to work with a physician that you trust who's going to actually have awareness of these types of things. There's some good data sets out there. I know Jason Horalak has a probiotic advisor, which sort of... Uh, oh, can we talk about that? Yes. So, so this is really, you know, I don't mean to cut you off, but there, there's another thing here that, that happens in the probiotic space that, I, that I, I think it comes from a great place, which is we need the specific formula that was used for X condition. Right. It's kind of this condition specific use of probiotics. And I don't write about that. Sorry, I keep doing these screen shares, but um, I just, I wanted your audience to have access to these, these things. Um, so if you go to our homepage, if you go to the blog, in this guide here, the, the three breast probiotics 2020, how to use them effectively. This is a 48 page behemoth article. I wrote on probiotics. 62 minute read. Yeah. 62 so, minute. So it's not, it's not a light read, but what I outline in there is essentially, okay. So I totally agree with being scientifically based and being factual in the claims that you make. But when we tell people that you need a certain probiotic for a certain condition, it's actually reflective of a somewhat limited understanding on probiotics. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a saying that, with mastery comes simplification. And, and so the better, and I think you'd agree, that's right, the better you understand how to do something, the more simplified your approach to it can be. Now, when you look at all the probiotic literature, and I, I cite some very specific examples in the article with references using constipation as one, there have been different probiotics that have all been shown to improve constipation. In fact, one clinical trial split the group into two different formulas and both showed efficacy for constipation. For brain, not brain fog, for anxiety and depression, there's been a meta-analysis published. And if you look at the clinical trials that constitute that meta-analysis, different iterations of category one probiotic were used. Um, the same thing holds true for treatment of IBS. A number of different probiotics have been used for IBS, and even different probiotics have been used for SIBO. A lactobifigo blend and a soil-based um, blend were both shown to be able to combat SIBO. It's just two specific examples. So I love where the advice comes from in terms of we need to be scientific and make sure we use the, the formula for the condition. But I think that takes away from the point that these are not drugs. These are not blocking a pathway or increasing your testosterone or what have you. They're trying to encourage a healthy change in the gut ecosystem. And if you hit that, then the byproduct of that can be improved cognition, improved skin, um, you know, whatever the non-gut derivative symptom may be. And I think it's also important to highlight for people here as well that the, the mainstream understanding of probiotics is probably mostly wrong, that probiotics generally don't colonize the gut, that they may actually be acting as sort of a tilling process in the gut or a selectivity process. Because one of the things that you talk about in your book is that there are studies which show that even killed 
formulations of probiotics can have an effect in the gut. That perhaps it's not that these organisms are, they're not colonizing the gut. We're not trying to reseed the gut, but we're putting in this genetic material, we're putting in organisms which kind of press the buttons on the ecosystem and shift populations. Like they're, they're having almost like a, a grooming effect. Would you agree with that? Yeah, sorry, I muted myself while there was an ambulance going by. Um, yes, I mean fully, and and that's so. And this is something else that that we write about in the in the article. I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, this one section here, why your doctor could be wrong, and a science based summary matters. And we talk about levels of evidence. And sadly, one of the things that you will hear, again, I think well intentioned conventional gastroenterologists, and some of which who I've had on the podcast, and I greatly respect their work. But when asked about clinical trials, there's a lot of hand-waving and humming and hawing. I'm sorry, when asked about probiotics, there's a lot of hemming and hawing. And you know, really, what I break this down to is we could, so for probiotics, we do have gold standard level data, meaning numerous clinical trials and even clinical trials summarized in meta-analyses, most namely for IBS, but also for other conditions like anxiety and depression. So to say you know, we need more or better research in my opinion, it's in part a little bit of a dodge. Now, yes, we could have larger studies with thousands of participants that were akin to a uh, pharmaceutical funded level study. That would be better, but I don't know if it's, it's going to scroll here. Um, but making that recommendation is kind of like saying that if you have a Porsche, that's not a nice enough car and you need to have a Ferrari right? They're both awesome sports cars. Both levels of data that we have, let's say for probiotics or Faximin, are gold standard clinical trials, even meta-analyses. Now, does the Rifaximin trial have a you know, larger number of subjects per trial? Yes. But, and sorry if I'm getting a little bit kind of into the weeds here, the American College of Gastroenterology published a analysis of only the highest quality studies in IBS with probiotics and found that even when consulting to the highest quality studies, the benefit for IBS still resounded true. So that's why it's frustrating sometimes when you, when you hear conventional gastroenterologists say, well, you know, probiotics are interesting, but we don't have enough, enough research. We need to know the exact strains. And I mean, that's kind of true, but not really, because you can look at the fact that different formulas of probiotics, sorry, I got my screen share on. You can look at the fact that different formulas of probiotics have been used in the IBS literature and say, well, there's not one formula that's definitely the best, so we can't recommend any. Take a tricyclic antidepressant for your IBS. Yes. <laughs> or, or you could say, well, it looks like various formulas have all shown benefit, so it may not actually be super formula specific, but rather find one that just clears the quality assurance bar and give it a try. This is the same sort of thinking that people will use to attempt to dismantle a carnivore diet or other interventions. And they'll say, we don't have any double-blind trials. And you think like, well, there's a lot of people getting better. Let's use what we do know. And let's use the evidence we do have about, you know, what are the potential nutrient deficiencies that might develop? How can we circumvent that, et cetera, et cetera. I think that in Western medicine, people have become evidence limited um, and, and too evidence limited. And of course, we're doing all of this practice from the place of not harming people, but True. probiotics, dietary change, these are pretty safe interventions. And that's part of my work saying, hey, 
eating a meat-based diet is pretty darn safe. Like you've been told wrong, it's not gonna cause cancer, et cetera. And I think part of your work is saying, hey, look, probiotics are super safe. Like we shouldn't be avoiding these and we certainly should not be uh, elevating tricyclic antidepressants for IBS or using pharmaceuticals before we do these other apparently much less uh, toxic interventions. I mean, there are so many drugs that people will get, as you mentioned, proton pump inhibitors, et cetera, et cetera, for these conditions, when in fact, we should be doing things that are much less potentially damaging and, and, and really saying like, hey, look, I almost think we need to weight the evidence based on what is the potential downside, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, like let's use, let's use all the therapies we can that are super safe before we use any of the therapies that are going to hurt people more, even if the therapies that hurt people more have a lot more evidence or a lot more research-funded studies. So anyway, yeah. maybe that's a good thing to close on, a little, a little meager point of hope for the future, a glimmer <laughs> of hope. I know you've got to run. I don't want to keep you too long. But so last question, I've got my new t-shirt on. I'm going to send you one of these. Look at this. Stay radical. Oh, I love it. You're getting one of these. Great. Yeah. So what is the most radical thing that you have done recently? And you can feel free to choose whatever you'd like. It's oh, you know, I just so this is a great one. So I was home. Well, I think it's a great one. You tell me. Um, I was home visiting in Massachusetts, visiting my niece and nephew, and I was hoping for snow, but instead we had an ice storm, and, and it snowed a couple of weeks ago. So there's that small dusting, but you couldn't really sled on. <laughs> you can't sled on this much snow, obviously, but it was icy, and so I said, you know what? We're gonna find a way to make this work, and we were actually going sledding like body sledding in people's front yards where we it was all iced over and you, you know we would just go down the hill like sliding and and i'm just like almost a, a pure ice rink and you had to be careful i fell one time and it, it hurt um but it was absolutely phenomenal we were laughing and they're four and six laughing tripping over each other and you know it was so icy that you try to stop yourself and you couldn't and it was just like well i'm gonna slide all the way to the bottom of the hill here because there's nothing i can do um, so yeah, maybe that's a good example of making, you know, lemonades from lemon and also the importance of being in good shape because, you know, to hang with a four and a six year old and fall and slip and slide, you've, you know, have to have kept yourself up, but it was a ton of fun. That sounds, it sounds incredible, man. That sounds very playful and really cool. Why is there not a video of that on your Instagram? I have a picture or two, actually. I, I should. I, I asked my mom to take a video, and bless her heart, she just isn't super inclined with technology. So it was so so dark that um, you know we couldn't see anything. But I will post. I will post on my Instagram. There, there's a picture of me, my niece, and my nephew essentially sliding on the ground like a ball, just laughing, and it was it was a ton of fun. Less people think that we are just boring doctors. I don't think anybody thinks we're boring doctors, but less people think that we are boring doctors, you know? Don't lose the kid inside of you. I mean, no. that would be something I would say, just have that playful spirit because it's just so freeing. That's one of the things I think is, is nice about kids. They're, they're just not inhibited by, ooh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be in so-and-so's front yard. My perspective is, well, you know, we're not doing anything weird in here. We're just sledding down a hill. And, and maybe that's even a better way of approaching community which is instead of everyone just minding their own business, maybe it's something fun and playful that can bring people together. So that's how I look at it. Maybe I'm a little weird, but you know, I'd like to be fun and playful and hopefully inspire other people to be the same way. No, I love that, man. I did a podcast with my buddy, Aaron Alexander. And at the beginning of the podcast, Great we, talked about, we yeah. talked about the, uh, we talked about the definition or the, the etymology of the word weird. And apparently it comes from just those who break the norms, those who think outside of the box. It has a negative connotation now, but I think we should all embrace our inner weird. And so anyway, 
Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, you guys. This is the after show, the after party. Welcome to the after party. I hope you will check out heartandsoilsupplements.com. You should follow us on Instagram at heartandsoilsupplements. I did a steak dance this week. I also talked about the steak dance in my newsletter. I've got a newsletter at carnivoremd.com if you want to sign up for the Fundamental Health Insider uh, to stay up to date on things. I talk about science every week. And there's a newsletter at heartandsoilsupplements.com. And you can also get the Daily Radical where I share quotes and workouts and poetry and movies and podcasts that I like every day. Just a quick bite. But if you get those newsletters, please make sure they go to your inbox. Get them out of promotions. Get them into your primary if you want to hear from me. If you don't want to hear from me, leave them wherever you want. But um, as you know, with Heart and Soil, I just want you to get nose to tail nutrition. I wish we lived in a world where we were all... Uh, out hunting with each other and dancing in the sun and dancing under the moon and eating uh, animals that we've respectfully harvested and eating the organs fresh, but that just doesn't happen in 2020. And with that in mind, I feel so strongly about the work that I'm doing at Hardened Soil and also so strongly about the work that folks like whiteoakpastures.com, that belcampo.com, that um, forceofnaturemeats.com are doing. And Regenerative agriculture is the future. This is what we do. I can't wait to establish a regenerative supply chain in the United States. We are working on it, and we're coming out with all kinds of cool stuff at Heart and Soil in the near future as well. So check out Let's Get Checked as well, trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd, and nutrisense.io, a CGM. It'll change your life, I'm telling you. I'm going to put one on again here soon and do some more carbohydrate experiments um, because I think they're so valuable to illustrate to people, as I was talking about in my newsletter this week, that, listen, carbohydrates de novo do not cause insulin resistance or metabolic dysfunction. In the setting of insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction, they can be very helpful if removed, or the removal can be very helpful. You can listen to the mini podcast I did about this earlier this last week on Friday, and check out my social media for more about these things. So that is that. I love you all. Stay radical. Texas is an amazing place. I hope to see you all in Austin very soon. And please leave me a review on Amazon for my book, The Carnivore Code. Please leave this podcast a review if you like it on iTunes. That is how we spread the word. I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Fun podcast with Lucy Mailing and then all kinds of fun stuff in the works. Take care, you guys. 